This is episode 241 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Biology of HSCs, with Dr. Shannon McKinney-Freeman. Hey, everybody. We are doctors Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Shannon McKinney-Freeman from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital on the podcast to talk about her work exploring the fundamental biology of hematopoietic stem cell ontogeny, molecular regulation, and transplantation. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, Dale and I are looking forward to seeing you at ISSCR 2023. With more than 4,000 scientists from more than 75 countries attending, it's the global meeting for stem cell biologists. Join us in Boston, Massachusetts for the live event or attend virtually. Visit ISSCR2023.org for more information. Yeah, we can't wait to be at ISSCR just a few weeks away, and uh, we will definitely be there in person, but you know, no, nothing wrong with attending virtually either. Moving on to the first paper of the roundup today. This is a nature paper coming from NYU. Um, this is titled, "Dedifferentiation Maintains Melanocyte Stem Cells in a Dynamic Niche. This is a, a cool conceptual advance in the area of the hair follicle. Um, a lot of implications for hair graying. In fact, it's picked up some popular press as well. My dad, this balding Indian man, <laughs> sent me this paper a couple of days ago saying, have you seen this one? Maybe it has something to do with you know why I'm going bald. I'm like, sorry, dad. Unfortunately, this has nothing to do with your balding. This is more about hair graying. But nonetheless, it is a really cool, I think, conceptual uh, advance here, nice observational study. So let's dive into it. So for reason, for reasons that haven't been super well established, this melanocyte stem cell or MCSC population tends to fail earlier than other adult stem cell populations. Okay. This is the this is the major population of, of cells that leads to uh, hair graying or uh, affects hair graying in in most humans and also in mice. So that's a cool thing in itself that you can use the mouse as a nice model system to, to study hair graying in an accelerated fashion, of course. I mean, the current dogma is saying that these MCSCs or melanocyte stem cells are reserved in an undifferentiated state in the hair follicle niche. Then they're segregated, separated from their differentiated progeny that actually move away after certain cues from different regenerative stimuli in, in the hair, right? But here they're actually showing through a bunch of really amazing live imaging in these mice that most of these melanocyte stem cells actually toggle shift back and forth between these transit amplifying and also their stem cell states for their self-renewal and their generation of their downstream progeny, which is of course what stem cells do. And this is actually fundamentally distinct from other self-renewing stem cell based systems. So like I said, they figured out a they figured out these mechanisms through a ton of live imaging single cell RNA sequencing and showed that these melanocyte stem cell populations move around. They actually move between the hair follicle stem cell and the transit amplifying uh, compartments where they actually can either, you know, in a di you know, kind of a uh, 
yin and yang kind of fashion, uh, either enter distinct differentiation states covered by uh, wind signaling to turn into melanocytes or otherwise just renew their stem cells. Okay. And so if there's a physical shift away from a particular niche, that's why the the melanocyte populations are not forming and that's why you lead to the the hair graying okay that's the that's their hypothesis here that's what they demonstrated and using a bunch of long-term lineage tracing they show that the melanocyte stem cell population is maintained by these reverted mcscs rather than by the reserve stem cells that are actually exempt from these changes okay and the other thing is during an aging this is an aging related story and of course using mouse as a, as a cool accelerated aging system there is an accumulation of these stranded melanocyte stem cells that actually don't contribute to the regeneration of the melanocyte progeny okay and that's what i'm talking about it, they're stuck they can't move physically move to to do their thing um and that's either why or why not they contribute to the hair graying okay it's a physical dynamic that's contributing to the downstream phenotype in the hair grain so it's a cool new model where dedifferentiation of these stem cells might be integral to the the homeostasis and the overall proper maintenance of you know uh, of, of stem cells in general okay so maybe this is something that's unique in the melanocyte population melanocyte stem cell population and by modulating uh, melanocyte stem cells this actually uh, modulating their movement depending on where they actually go and what niche they actually go to this might be a, a cool new approach for preventing hair graying <laughs> i mean there's a, a potentially a lot of translational application here if you can keep these cells where they're supposed to be and preventing them from moving around then maybe hairs won't gray anymore and i think perhaps there's different pharmacological interventions that can come into play here um but this is big business okay maybe not big business for my dad because it's a lost cause for him but maybe for me maybe for you but you know we're gonna sadly be going through this pretty soon hair graying and maybe we can find some sort of way to keep these melanocyte stem cells where they're supposed to be and keep our hairs you know their natural beautiful color what do you think <laughs> I think you don't have to worry. I'm looking at you. you. I don't see any grays on your horizon. You look young as a spring chicky, my friend. Myself, uh, not so much. But uh, I mean, yeah, notwithstanding, this is a cosmetic translational application. I think it's still important. And also, <clears throat> as you said, the, the the concept, I think this is uh, upsetting or contributing to the unsettling of, of a lot of dogmas. You know, as stem cell biologists, we have I think this like implicit bias, we see every cell type system and we assume we, when, you know, there's a, a self-renewing or a stem cell population that they're going to differentiate along this kind of clade path with intermediate progenitors down to a, a terminus, right? But, you know, this and other studies like it, I think, ha have shown that that paradigm isn't always um, the case and that there's there's many modes of repopulating a, a population um, and and restoring a niche or maintaining homeostasis in whatever organ. And of course, you know, I'm going to say this, when you come up with a conceptual advance like this, you just got to wonder, um, is there a similar uh, type of, of, of system that's applied in other organs? And if, if uh, you know, this this stalling, as you said, in graying, it, it results here in, in, a, in the graying of the hairs, but you wonder if in other stem cell systems that maybe it might contribute to to senescence or some kind of oncogenesis or something. So I think there's a lot in here um, in the concept. And, you know, I think the reason it gets a lot of news is because, yeah, I'm sure it's like a multi-billion dollar industry. 
um, restoring the color of hair. And this could could uh, really be a silver bullet for that. But um, regardless of what brought it to the press, I think it's a really important study to have on the show and to talk about and and to have in the annals of science. Yeah, I agree with you. And a cool mechanism. It's something you don't like you said, something we don't always traditionally think about the kind of the role of the the physical dynamics of these stem cells and their overall motion and contributing to their downstream function. Uh, this is a really cool model system. And like I mentioned during the the roundup, the I think the beauty of this study should not be understated. It's a absolutely beautiful study visually because of this intravital live imaging. I mean, there's just so many of these cool new imaging technologies that are coming out left and right on a monthly basis that I just can't even keep track of. And uh, I think, yeah, that's the next big wave in imaging is being able to image cells and molecular processes, cell movement in live animals, in, in mice, obviously, initially, but who knows, maybe it's possible in humans down the road, you can do some true live imaging of non-genetically fluorescent humans. I have no idea, but uh, but just wanted to emphasize that point there of the, the technical marvel of this particular paper. Oh, yeah. We talk about all the time with all the amazing technology that's emerging continuously. I feel like we got to look at everything all over again. And this is another case where looking at it from a different angle with higher resolution is lending new insight in a, in a real way uh, and with a real conceptual advance. So a great story. Glad you covered it. I got another story that's uh, about cells here and, and uh, you know, expansion, but in, in a negative way. Uh, we're talking about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is considered a rare disease, but the disease burden is pretty high. More than 200,000 affected individuals in the United States, and get this, more than 50,000 newly diagnosed each year. And given that that's a fourth of all the cases, you you got to you know wonder um, what the course of this disease, and I mean, if you're curious, it's pretty devastating. The fatal progression is rapid, um, but the the mechanisms that mediate that rapid and fatal progression are un, uh, poorly understood. Uh, one hypothesis that's gaining a lot of weight is that the IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, results from recurrent subclinical lung injury that imparts some fundamental changes to the epithelial and or stromal cells um, that causes them to favor fibrosis instead of repair, this kind of maladaptive fibrosis, as it's called. And epithelial cells have been uh, implicated as the real centerpiece of this maladaptive process through the, these uh, association studies in both sporadic and familial IPF, but also just like direct comparison uh, uh, of the transcriptomes of epithelial cells isolated from the lungs of patients with IPF versus controls, um, and other evidence. There's a lot of reasons to think that the, the genetic circuitry in epithelial cells is what's going awry and ultimately leading to this IPF phenotype. Um, and there was a recent uh, clonogenic analysis in the context of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that was performed by the same authors of this paper, or the same lead authors of this paper, Frank McKeon and Wazian who are at uh, the Stem Cell Center and University of Houston. And what that study showed, which is about three years ago in Cell, it showed that, you know, they do these, they generate these clonal libraries of epithelial cells and show that there's an emergence of three discrete uh, clonogenic epithelial airway stem cell variants. And each of those autonomously 
uh, promote fibrosis and inflammation. So this was kind of a, a, a double down on that story here. They performed the same methods, except they were looking in the context of IPF. They, they used the single cell cloning technique to generate so-called libraries of uh, clonal libraries of basal stem cells from the lungs of 16 patients with IPF and 10 control patients. And they identified this major stem cell variant uh, that was able to transform normal lung fibroblasts into pathogenic myofibroblasts in vitro. So that's trans, like a paracrine effect. They're able to change these cells. And also in vivo, uh, in xenografts of these clonal libraries, they were able to activate and recruit myofibroblasts. Um, and here's the thing, this, this pro-fibrotic stem cell variant, as they showed, was even shown to exist in, in low quantities in normal, even fetal lungs. So it suggests that, you know, the intrinsic potential there is from is there from the beginning. And uh, there's an expansion of the cell population with recurrent injury that ultimately results in a maladaptive phenotype that's more global and pervasive in the lung. But uh, the reason why this was a big story in science translational medicine is because they performed drug screens which uh, highlighted these specific vulnerabilities that these pro-fibrotic variants had uh, and those were inhibitors of EGF signaling and mTOR signaling. Um, so you got two right there, two for one in this study, uh, prospective therapeutic targets that could perhaps slow or, or mitigate um, the progression of this, you know, very fatal and rapidly progressing disease that affects you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S., much less globally. So a, a great study. Um, and I love it when a study at the end has a solution. And this is one of those. This is something that may be druggable. Um, so there's a lot of downstream kind of translational work that needs to be done to see if if this is really a candidate. But if it is, it really will make a big difference in, in relieving that disease burden. Yeah, this is a pretty scary disease in IPF. And I think it's this is also another reflection on the power of the the technologies used in this particular study and just the the importance of primary samples, right, in, in generating these these libraries, like you said, 16 patients with IPF and also 10 controls. That's a that's a lot of work to to identify these these interesting populations. And one for one, I'm still amazed that we are continuously discovering these brand new populations that we have never seen before. And that, again, is a testament to the power of next generation single cell RNA sequencing, which is helping us uncover these kind of things. You know, one thing, and this is sort of unrelated to the to the story, we're on the realm of fibrosis, right? I wonder whatever happened to that study that came out of UPenn, you know, the CAR-T approach for targeting fibrosis. I still think about that study because just conceptually, that was so cool, even though, I mean, there were certain limits limitations with the paper. Um, but fibrosis is something that's so universal, not just with IPF and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but also fibrosis after myocardial infarction. I mean, that just seems like that approach would have so many different applications that I'm just waiting. I believe, I forgot who uh, came out with that study, but it was from UPenn. Um, but I can't wait to see the next generation of those particular approaches. I'm, I'm just kind of can't wait to see that. Yeah, it's a hot field. That and the senolytics, you know, getting rid of senescent cells as well as targeting fibrotic cells. It is a a, a brave new world there and could really change the landscape. <clears throat> I mean, the question for me is, is what do you target there? In this case, 
uh, I think it, it, there's a really rich data set uh, included in this paper as well as ones that come before it that really show how these cells are different. And that was the key to that paper, right? When you're talking about targeting fibrosis is you had to have gene expression that was surface expression so that the CAR T cells could see it. And it had to be unique to those particular cells. And in this paper as well, I invite the listeners to have a look because there's a, a real feast of targets there. A lot of them surface expressed, a lot of them secreted. And that really speaks to the, the mechanism here of this maladaptive fibrosis is that this bad cell is talking to the good cells and perverting them. And clearly that reaches a critical mass and then becomes a real, uh, you know, lethal phenotype ultimately. So nipping that in the bud with some kind of antifibrotic CAR-T or a senolytic, maybe not a senolytic in this case, but antifibrotic CAR-T for sure is another path if you're kind of wary about using mTOR inhibitors <laughs> systemically, um, then maybe a CAR-T would be a better approach. So yeah, you're right on there. Ruth. Yeah. I mean, that's the other part of it is, you know, EGF and mTOR, that's a, those are two powerful signaling pathways. So you have to be very selective and targeted in your approach for, you know, modulating those pathways. But yeah, I think a really neat observational conceptual study and power in the data set here, which is uh, always a good thing. And again, I think, you know, all these data sets are publicly available for you to browse through. So take a look if this is what you're working on. Next study that we're going to focus on is a cell stem cell paper coming from the lab of Tom Rando, who previously was at Stanford for a very long time. He was there when I was there as a grad student as well. But as of recently, he has moved to become the director of the stem cell program just down the road from me at UCLA. And other familiar faces on this particular paper are Anne Brunet and my former grad school mentor, Joe Wu. I still don't exactly know why he's on this paper because I don't think there's too much cardiac stuff on here, but I guess everybody loves Joe Wu, right? Anyways, this is a paper titled Exercise Reprograms the Inflammatory Landscape of Multiple Stem Cell Compartments during mammalian aging. And I think this is a nice, you know, combinatorial study between Tom Rando's lab and also Anne Brunet, who's been working in aging for, for a while. So this is about exercise. Exercise, which is, is a good thing, not just from a cardiovascular standpoint, but potentially from an anti-aging and anti-inflammatory standpoint. And it has the ability to rejuvenate stem cells and improve tissue regeneration in aging mammals. This has been established before. But the cellular and molecular changes that are actually elicited by exercise have not been systemically studied across a range of cell types and stem cell compartments, okay? And so this is another massive single-cell data set paper. And what they did here is they subjected young and old mice to aerobic exercise, you know, just made them work out <laughs> for a while, and uh, generated a large single-cell transcriptomic atlas of muscle, neural, hematopoietic stem cells with their niche cells and progeny, actually complemented by whole transcriptome analysis of single myofibers. Okay, so, all right. So muscle, Joe Wu works on heart, which is a type of muscles. So maybe he had some contribution there, sir. Yeah, sorry, Joe. I'm not, I'm not underestimating your abilities here, if you're listening to me. But anyways, moving on to the rest of the story. I mean, they found that exercise actually ameliorated the upregulation of a number of inflammatory pathways associated with old age and restored aspects of intercellular communication that are actually modulated by these immune cells in these stem cell compartments. So great exercise, not just great for cardiovascular health, but also great for anti-aging, great for anti-inflammatory impacts. And this is diving 
deeply into the cellular mechanisms as to how this might be happening. It has an impact exercise, apparently on the composition and the transcriptomic landscape of both circulating and tissue resident immune cells. And I, I think more than anything, this is just a great data set to have if you're working in this area. Um, for example, my one of my undergrad mentors who I worked for for a summer, Tony Rosenzweig, is working on a similar area. He's basically looking at the effect of exercise on just cardiovascular health at the cellular level and also the inflammatory response that's elicited by exercise in the context of a cardiovascular and heart function specifically. So I'm sure he'd love this data set. I'm sure there's a ton of folks in aging and anti-inflammatory approaches who are loving this data set. So it's a comprehensive view of the the responses of multiple age stem cells and cell niches to, to exercise at the transcriptomic level. And I guess exercise is something we could all use more of, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, it's one of the, I like these papers because it's something you know, and but you don't really understand. We've all known forever that exercise keeps you young, um, just empirically, but uh, the mechanisms uh, are not really well defined. And this is, I think, getting at that maybe not hasn't resolved it completely but getting at it but i ask you what's the end game there is this just like hey guys you really should exercise are we ultimately do you think there's any minds out there like yo we got a drug exercise we got to create a surrogate <laughs> where you take a pill and it's like going to the gym because i i get it from a health standpoint but I, it's hard for me to to imagine that you could have any one uh any one thing that would would um be a surrogate for this comprehensive influence of exercise across so many systems. Um, and I'm not saying that anyone's talking about creating a drug surrogate, but I think that that that's my takeaway is that this physical activity and exercise is something that clearly has been tuned in over the course of eons of evolution to have a benefit and to keep you out there, keep you living and keep reproducing. So uh, I wonder if it's something that we can hack. I doubt it, but it, it's a good reason to get to the gym. Aruna. After the show, I'm going to go and press up some weights. We'll see if that happens, but I agree with you. I mean, I think that is a long-term vision, but I do think it's kind of cheating, you know, to find something that like a magic pill that would mimic exercise. But you know, I, I just, I agree. also agree that I don't think that's possible because exercise has so many other secondary impacts you know the release of the endorphins to make you feel good and also just the the uh, musculoskeletal dynamic part of it actually like moving the different portions of your body when you exercise to improve muscle tone and and skeletal strength and all these kind of other things so i don't know maybe who knows what's possible in with the modern technology that we have at our disposal but I am doubtful that we'll ever find a pill. And I'm I'm happy that we won't find a pill because I feel like you got to do the work, all right, to get the to get the benefit. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, you're still a young man. Talk to me again when you got uh pain in your hips and your knees, partner. So uh I, I could <laughs> use a pill in about five years. I don't think I'm gonna be able to make it a, a full a full set, the gym. But um another way that uh nature has cheated, that's my segue here. Uh, is in in wound healing, you know, a way something that's been tuned over eons of evolution. Wound healing is mediated uh, specifically by epithelial cells. You know, I talked about epithelial cells and the maladaptive response in, in IPF, just in my other roundup story. But epithelia is what they do is they're the outer layer of organs, right? And they're able to sense, adapt to environmental changes. 
and maintain homeostatic uh, integrity um, through the turnover of these epithelial stem cells that mediate wound healing and recovery from injury. Uh, and that works with, after tissue damage, the epithelial lineages nearby the injury uh, acquire this plasticity, allows them to migrate to the wound site and contribute to the re-epithelialization. But uh, an idea that's emerged just in the last few years um, is that epithelial cells adapt to a stressful event like a wound um, and establish a chromatin memory so that the next time a, a similar insult happens, they can respond faster. Uh, and, you know, this has a positive influence, the idea that they can have a quick response with this memory and, and, and more augmented regenerative potential. But there's also negative consequences that might be related to that. Yeah, cancer, right? Anytime you have something that's primed to grow, um, there's the potential that that could go haywire. Uh, <clears throat> so in, in this article, which is from Giacomo Donati, who's at the University of Turin, Italy, uh, they used lineage, a lot of beautiful imaging as well. They used lineage tracing and uh, single cell analysis to kind of deconstruct the spatial dynamics of wound memory and the, the full uh, spectrum of the adaptive response in these epithelial cells. Uh, what they showed is that there's a specific stem cell population that's distant from the original injury and that gives rise to long lasting. You know, they looked uh, uh, 10 months later in these mice that they, they still had this memory. Um, they have a long lasting wound memory. Uh, and even though they don't take part in the first healing event, they become pre-activated by this priming. Uh, and at the chromatin and transcriptional level that, that they're like primed to, to mediate enhanced uh, wound repair. And this is where it gets a little bit dicey and negative uh, is that, well, potentially positive, depending how you look at it, is that that wound memory also has long-term harmful consequences uh, in tumor genesis, in the form of tumor genesis. And they actually show this really elegantly, just looking at the distance from the initial wound, you know, millimeter distance showing when they, you know, put UVB on these, on the skin, they show that depending on how far they away from the initial wound, there's a greater or lesser pr propensity for this tumor genesis. So this is a big idea. I think, again, we're talking about conceptual advances. For me, it's not totally novel. This idea has been in play. And I think there's been uh, a lot of murmuring about it. But um, here's a clear example that there's a direct relationship between the initial wound, the priming of distal cells, and their ultimate uh, increased potential for oncogenesis. So there's a lot to think about and unpack, but it, it gets you thinking about, you know, when you're treating any wound, if, if you know, if you gotta have a, especially a wound that's repetitive, um, that you gotta, you may have uh, an area beyond just the wound site to look for kind of a pre, pre-cancerous treatment. So it's a nice conceptual advance with some real meat and potatoes in the paper. I, I encourage everyone to have a look. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you think of people who you know, for no fault of their own, have to repeatedly, for example, take insulin injections, right, on a daily basis, and that's repeated wounding. I mean, does that have potential oncogenic phenotypes down the road? I don't know. That's, it's a very interesting story. I'm actually 
partly surprised that Mike Longacre isn't somehow affiliated with the story since he's like the wound healing guy that I knew really well at Stanford. But but it's a, a very interesting conceptual approach. And in addition to, you know, diabetics taking their their insulin injections every day, there's people who are just really prone to getting hurt, <laughs> you know, really clumsy may make uh, scrapes and bruises just by falling all the time. And I don't know, does that have other long-term implications and problems for longevity? And who knows? I mean, that's a really interesting thing to think about. That's for sure. Absolutely agree, Arun. A lot to think about and a great story in nature cell biology. Now on to our guest, Dr. Shannon McKinney Freeman. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies has been in the field of hematopoietic stem and progenitor research for over 20 years. And during that time, they've learned a thing or two. Visit stemcell.com slash hemahub for educational resources to help you further your research on hematopoiesis and hematological malignancies. All right, everybody. With us for today's episode, we have Dr. Shannon McKinney Freeman who is principal investigator and member at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. The McKinney Freeman Lab explores the fundamental biology of hematopoietic stem cells, my favorites, particularly the genetic and cellular regulation of their in vivo repopulating activity. By better understanding the factors controlling the ability of hematopoietic stem cells to home to and graft and repopulate the hematopoietic compartment after transplantation, the McKinney Freeman Lab hopes to develop better and more effective HSC transplantation therapies. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. The pleasure is truly ours. You've been on my radar for more than a decade now, ever since the monumental transcriptomic analysis you led in daily lab of hematopoietic stem cells from literally thousands of embryonic and adult mice a lot has changed in terms of our understanding of developmental and adult hematopoiesis and the tools we use to parse the mechanisms underlying self-renewal and differentiation, but you're still grinding away at the mysteries and revealing novel insights related to these cells and that compartment. Why don't you start by giving us an overview of your lab focus and your research and clinical goals? Sure. Um, well, thank, thank you for that introduction. That was a really really very generous. Um, yeah, so my lab, as you know, we're, we're, we're globally focused on basic biology of HSCs. And currently, we have really three major areas of focus. So we're still really interested in better understanding the development and ontogeny of the hematopoietic system. We um, shifted our focus more recently to really trying to understand the nature of the early developing bone marrow because we um, sort of came, you know, did some work recently that led us to believe that that might be an important site of expansion for hematopoietic stem cells. So really excited to be diving deeper into that and trying to understand if that is indeed the case. As you mentioned, we're also just really interested in the transplantability of adult hematopoietic stem cells and functional heterogeneity in that compartment. And we, we did a, a functional transplantation-based screen a few years ago looking for novel molecular regulators of that. And so we've been following up on some of the most exciting hits that came out of that screen for the last seven or eight years or so. And I think we're still doing some pretty exciting stuff on that, that we're developing. And then 
sort of a newer area of interest that we haven't yet published on, but that we've been developing for the last three years as we've gotten more and more interested in how chronic hematologic disease can functionally damage hematopoietic stem cells. And the, the context that we're really focused on is sickle cell disease and sort of the fitness of hematopoietic stem cells in that context. And that has very practical applications to taking advantage of stem cells from those patients for gene therapy purposes. And it also has, I think, important implications for how those patients are going to tolerate certain types of therapy like hydroxyurea long-term and their potential risk for later hematologic uh, complications, especially as they live longer. And so that's a very exciting new area that we're currently writing up a couple papers on. And um, yeah, so that's what we're all about these days. A little bit of everything, I suppose. And it's funny because, you know, HSC biology is like supposed to be one of the oldest subfields in stem cell biology. And what you're alluding to is that there's still so much amazing fundamental work that has to happen to figure out how these, you know, HSCs mobilize, you know, and graft, all these kind of things. And so you got your work cut out for you. And before we dive a little bit deeper into the research side of things, I want you to take us back a little bit. You know, Dalen mentioned that you know, you were a postdoc in the Daly Lab, one of the the world's preeminent blood stem cell research labs led by George Daly, who's been actually the dean of the Harvard Medical School for a few years now. And Boston has no shortage of powerhouse, you know, hematopoietic stem cell labs to choose from in terms of training. You've got Daly Lab, Dave Scadden, Stu Orkin, all these giants in the field, right? And all kind of concentrated in that Longwood area. But, you know, tell us about that time training in Boston. Tell us about, you know, being in that kind of mecca of blood stem cell biology and uh, about life in the in the lab. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I, uh, yeah, it, everything you said is true. So I was, I was with um, George from about uh, end of 2003 to 2010. So I, I had a, a long postdoc in the daily lab and I really enjoyed it. It was a really fantastic time to be a trainee in that lab because I joined the lab just as George was moving from the Whitehead Institute at MIT over to Children's Boston. And right just about six to 12 months before his lab really exploded in terms of bringing in lots of new people and really just creating this huge team um, and also a few years before, you know, induced pluripotent stem cells kind of took over the world. So it was really fun to be a trainee in that lab at the time when all that work was coming on and coming out and, you know, watching how it was really transforming the directions that people were going in. And um, I also had the good fortune to be in the lab at a time when there were just a lot of other really amazing people in that lab and just being in their company and learning from them and, and you know, being able to bounce ideas off those people was just fantastic. Not just in George's lab, but also in the labs that at the time we shared a floor with, which would be, you know, Len Zahn's lab was right next door with people like Trista North and Teresa Bowman and, you know, these kind of people training at the same time. And then um, Stu Orkin's lab was at the other end of the hall with people like, you know, Jen Trowbridge and Jen Zhu and all these amazing scientists training at the same time. So just, you know, growing up with this great group of people scientifically was just incredibly fantastic. And I feel very fortunate to 
had that experience and it, it serves me now because, you know, now I have this great network of people, you know, that I can reach out to when I'm, you know, trying to figure something out or understand some new technology or whatever. And it, it's just so valuable. So yeah, I had a fantastic time in George's lab. And then George himself um, was just a great, you know, he was a great mentor. Um, you know, he obviously got busier and busier, you know, as, as my time in the lab kind of progressed. And I bet I always really admired how he set aside time for the lab and how when when we would have like subgroup meetings or big group meetings, it was always just 100% focused on whatever was being presented, whether it was somebody developing, you know, the next story that they were hoping to send to a super high impact journal or somebody developing like a little side story that was probably bound for a slightly different audience. He was just always 100% engaged. And I really also admired his ability to keep track of the diversity of work that was going on in the group. And he always just seemed right on top of everything, which especially now that I'm a PI trying to manage my own show, it's, I, I, I now appreciate even more and more, you know, what a tremendous skill that was. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it was, the time I was there, it was, it was just a great training environment. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Sounds like a, such a great uh, snapshot you gave there. And I love to hear about those, you know, here we are almost two decades later and those names really ring out and it's, it's, it's great to hear about you, you know, just down the hall, the other trainees and how you've all really ascended and become these amazing scientists. And I mean, it gets me thinking about the kind of how the the mentees ultimately have to reset the truth for their mentors, right? You know, that's kind of the story of science. There's these dogma and the upsetting and such dogmas. Um, and we talked talked about one of your papers on the show a few episodes back, episode 228, if you guys want to check that out. Uh, one that demonstrated surprising kinetics of HSC expansion in the fetal liver um, and ran pretty counter to the dogma that's long been held in the field. And, you know, as Arun alluded to, a lot of brilliant scientists have been scrutinizing these systems for like the whole history of biological observation. I mean, we're talking about back to Aristotle. And then here you come and kind of reset our understanding uh, of you know, kinetics and expansion of these true HSCs in the fetal liver. How's that come about? Um, is it the increased resolution and sophistication of assay and analysis? You know, are you just a rebel looking to 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 you know break down all these dogmas? Also, are there are there other long held dogmas in hematology that you think are due for revision or disruption? Well, there are definitely a few core concepts that are being challenged recently, which we can talk about um, after I answer your first question. Um, you know, how we sort of came to that observation, I think it was, you know, sometimes in science we do experiments and we get unexpected results, right? And sometimes we kind of blow past those and, and just ignore them a little bit and, and instead pursue experiments that are just going to kind of confirm the model that we kind of have in our mind that we're, we're exploring, which is 
not a great way to do science, right? We should be doing the experiments that destroy, you know, the model as simply and quickly as possible, right? As opposed to just reinforce, reinforce some idea we have in our head. And so I think, so what I really mean to say is that I think I think when you get a result that doesn't make sense to you or is unexpected, you know, once you rule out technical explanations that could be confounding the data, then you really have to sit back and think about, okay, well, if this is really the answer, then how, how do I revise this model to, to accommodate the data, right? Because data is data. And I think it's okay if the proposal that you make initially ends up to not be quite right, that's fine. Um, other people can come along and do new experiments and refine that idea or clarify. But, you know, if you've done the work well and you have data, you know, you present it and interpret it. And so for us, the observation that was made that kind of led to that finding was I had this really, really talented postdoc in my lab, um, Miguel Ganutha, who now has his own lab at the Barts Cancer Research Institute in London. And he had developed this novel way of taking advantage of the multicolored confetti reporter allele for lineage tracing that allowed him to estimate numbers of events that were labeled. And so I think the key is that he took a lineage tracing approach where the way we defined HSCs was a little bit different than how they're classically defined. You know, we classically define them based on their transplantability right? That's a functional HSC. But that's, you know, if one wanted to be really provocative, you could argue that an HSC is an artifact of the way we functionally defined it. You know, what is a what is that transplantable cell? And what role does it have in any kind of biology, right? We're not, HSCs were not, did not evolve to be transplanted between individuals. But, you know, setting that aside, um, we define that cell as the cell that supports lifelong hematopoiesis. And that's basically the lineage tracing approach, right? And when we did those set of experiments and tried to induce labeling around this sort of fetal liver time point, we did not see this huge increase in functional long-term blood producers relative to the numbers of events that we knew were being specified in the developing embryo. And that was a really big surprise to us um, because our expectation was that if we kind of pulsed across this time point of ontogeny, we're going to see this big expansion. And so, you know, we then stepped back and tried to think about, well, what could that mean? And actually our initial model, I think, turned out to not be completely correct, although not, I don't know that we have a clear answer to that yet, but we initially thought, well, maybe there's some sort of a developmental bottleneck happening where there's some sort of selection for the cells that are actually gonna um, integrate themselves into the bone marrow and, and persist to, to realize this long-term potential. And so that's why we, we actually had another paper that we published recently where we started looking at the nature of the first HSCs in the mouse to move into the bone marrow environment. And that's sort of what instigated that work. But, but ultimately what the data suggested to us by just kind of pulsing across these time points uh, was that there just isn't this huge expansion of the cells that realize this potential that might happen later. And I think, once again, I think the key is, is that 
by relying on the definition of transplantability and whatnot, what you're really, you know, to say that, oh, there's, there's very few transplantable HSCs at this early time point in the liver. And then if we look a few days later, suddenly there's 20 times more, you know, what you're really testing there is potential, right? You're not actually testing fate. So you're saying, well, there is an increase in cells with this very specific potential, but that doesn't necessarily tell you, you know, what those cells are actually going to go on to do and participate as the embryo develops and, and the blood system matures. And so our data is really suggesting that, yes, you have this, this big expansion in cells that have this potential, but not so many of them actually go on to contribute to lifelong hematopoiesis, but there does seem to be a certain window of time uh, where you do have an expansion in the numbers of cells going on to contribute to lifelong hematopoiesis. And that's, that remains to be explored quite a bit more, I think, to really know, to really solidify that that is indeed what's going on. I think that you've encapsulated really well, and I think you're going to be busy for, for some time now. That's That's for sure. I mean, you know, Dalen also knows that I love asking this next question. I feel like we have to ask this question because I feel like we ask every single HSC biologist this particular question. I know this is not exactly your area of what you're working on right now, but there's this holy grail of hematopoietic stem cell biology out there, right? That no one to this day has truly figured out in my mind that I'm, of course, talking about the derivation expansion of bona fide hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent stem cells. You know, I mean, people have been working on this forever. Daily Lab has been working on this for a long time, folks from around the world, right? I think we're getting closer. There's no doubt about that. But I mean, a big reason why all the new developmental biology data sets are so powerful is because they're helping us to get to that question. You know, there's so many of these single cell data sets that are coming out these days and maybe they'll they'll help us get there, you know? And we've also talked about the importance of the niche and specifying HSCs, but how far away do you think we are from making that holy grail a reality? And I know it's not exactly what you work on, but I feel like I have to ask you this question. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think we're still pretty far. Um, that may not be a very popular answer in that space, but um, I think a couple of different things. Um, I think part of the reason why it hasn't, it's been so difficult is because the development of hematopoietic stem cells in the mammalian organism is really complicated, right? There's uh, just with any developing tissue, there's many different stages of uh, commitment. There's multiple niches that are involved, right? You have the specifying niche of the um, AGM. You have the whatever it is that's happening in the fetal liver. I, I tend to think of the fetal liver as more of a maturation niche and, and also a place where a lot of differentiation, especially red cells and things coming out of the yolk sac is happening. And then, of course, you have the developing bone marrow itself, which is going through its own transition uh, right around the time that, you know, stem cells come flooding into the bone marrow. And then, and then even the developing bone marrow itself shifts, right? Um, and then suddenly becomes this niche that makes everybody quiescent and, and helps them respond appropriately to exogenous cues. And, and being able to recapitulate all of that perfectly, I think, is, I think there's just a lot that we don't know. And until we fill in those gaps, I think it's going to be very challenging. And I, I, so for example, 
you know, let's imagine that that we're right and that the fetal liver is not the expansion niche for the cells that preserve that lifelong potential, that that's really happening in the first few weeks of life in the bone marrow. Well, that hasn't been explored really at all. Uh, only in the last couple of years have a bunch of groups been really starting to dive into the developing, like the developing vasculature of the bone marrow and things like that, which are obviously going to be really important for a supportive and expanding HSE niche, right? And so, so we really just don't know much about that at all. And that could be a big element that's missing. And then I also think that what also makes it complicated is the fact that it's all happening, you know, ex vivo, right? And even just maintaining stem cells that you pull out of, you know, adult bone marrow, you know, maintaining them long enough in a dish to, dish to expand their numbers well, et cetera, that's also still a challenge. So even if you actually specified a bona fide transplantable cell, um, you know, being able to capture them and expand them well is also another challenge. Now, there's been a lot of really interesting advances in that lately, as I'm sure you guys are very familiar with, um, in like the new PDA-based systems, et cetera. The, the human PDA paper just came out a few weeks ago. Um, that could be very helpful. And I and there's other groups that are doing, you know, small molecule screens, et cetera, for expanding HSEs ex vivo. That could also be like layered in, but it, it's just super complicated. And, and then one kind of provocative thought that I've had that kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, going back to the question of what other major dogmas in the field are, you know, ripe for being challenged. You know, this concept that the transplantable HSE, as we've defined it, you know, since the 1950s, that it is the cell that supports, you know, steady state, lifelong hematopoiesis. I mean, that's been challenged by certain groups over the last couple of years. And so let's imagine that this transplantable, let's imagine for a minute that this cell that we've identified through transplantation studies is in a way an artifact of those protocols, right? Like the that cell is the very rare cell that has the ability to overcome all the stresses that you're subjecting it to by taking it out of its native niche and throwing it into the bloodstream of a, uh, of a recipient and all of that. Let's imagine that that cell doesn't really exist in nature in the way that we presume that it does, that it really is these other populations, these MPP type cells that are really the cell that's, that, that's really being specified in large numbers and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, so maybe trying to recapitulate that transplantable technical artifact from differentiating IPS cells is just going to be very hard because maybe it's some sort of transplantation artifact. I know that's a kind of a crazy idea, but you know, these are the things that I, that I do think about when I think about the, the exact question that you just asked. Why is, why is this such a difficult thing to do? And now, as you know, you know, just um, this past fall, we had this really interesting paper emerging suggesting that, you know, all these different progenitor populations that are part of the hematopoietic hierarchy you know, many of them are being specified independently of, you know, that definitive HSC that we've defined, right? So how does that fit in when you're trying to coax an IPS cell um, to make this one very specific cell, right? So I, I, I think it really just fundamentally goes back to 
there's just a lot of things we don't understand and, and putting everything together perfectly to get large numbers of these cells is, is going to be a challenge. And then sometimes, you know, if we want to continue to be provocative, you know, one thing that's really benefited me being here at St. Jude is, is getting to know, you know, transplanters better, talking with them more about, um, you know, their clinical needs and limitations and learning more about just advances and HSC transplantation. And sometimes I wonder if this is where the real clinical need is. So for example, when I was a postdoc, you know, the justification for this work was, oh, there's, a, you know, not everybody who needs a transplant, you know, has access to a suitable donor. This could really solve that problem and make these therapies more accessible to many more patients. Well, there have been a lot of advances in HSE transplantation in the clinic since, you know, I started my postdoc in 2003, things like haplotransplants. They're figuring out how to do better and better with fewer and fewer complications, making, making donor availability, you know, solving that problem for lots and lots of patients, especially, for example, um, sickle cell patients, which is the community that I think about a lot, who really do have a major donor shortfall because, you know, they tend to be underrepresented minority groups who are not well represented in national registries. And um, so I guess I will say when I, I do a lot of reviewing of grants and I do get a little bit frustrated when I'm reviewing grants on this topic and the one justification that the, the investigator is always leading with is we're gonna, we're gonna solve donor problems. You know, we're gonna make it. And it's like, well, you know, go talk to a transplanter and find out where the real need is. Because if you talk to them, that's not necessarily the first thing on their list of concerns, you know, when they're, when they're treating their patients, right? They're, they're thinking more about um, sort of the immune therapy side of transplant, right? You know, inducing remission and, um, and yeah, they, they, some transplanters will even tell you, you know, I could find a donor for almost everybody now that, you know, I can, I can take advantage of haplotransplant protocols. Um, but, you know, that varies very much from community to community. You know, some centers are very invested in certain things. Some centers are invested in other types of transplant protocols. So all these things are still in development. I just, when I review those grants, because as you said, I'm not so much in that space, but when I review those grants, I just really wish that those investigators were taking kind of a broader perspective, right, on on why do we want to even achieve this scientific goal and what are the big benefits going to be? For, for me personally, I would see more immediate benefit to just disease modeling in general, right? The better we can specify these different populations, the better equipped we'll be to model certain types of diseases. And then you can do all kinds of stuff with that, right? Uh, but for transplant itself, I just got to say, I'm... There's a reason why I don't work on that anymore. <laughs> also, maybe I'm just not smart enough to know how to solve those tricky problems, right? And so I'm just like, oh, I'm going to leave that to, to younger, brighter, more creative types and, and work on these other things instead. But um, yeah, I've, I've, kind of, I've kind of lost the faith a little bit <laughs> when it comes to that area. All very salient. And I just have to disagree with the one thing, which is the last part of you not being smart enough to, to, to crack the nut. I mean, you're a synthesis there of all the challenges and what the real goal ought to be, I think, really uh, 
it 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 underscores how deeply we've thought about this. And uh, my takeaway there is, yeah, one, we worked on this so long and we're still pretty far away. And I love what you said also about the why, right? I mean, I feel like it's been held out as the Holy Grail for so long. It's like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? At the end, she's so fixated on the on the grail, she falls into a pit and dies. Maybe we got to bring our heads <laughs> up a little bit and think about what we're doing. That's um, a fun analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably not the most apt, but let, don't be like Halsa or whatever her name was in uh, in the Holy Grail. Stay alive. <laughs> I just watched all those movies. You know, they're making an Indiana Jones five, and I've got two little boys, age eight and ten, that hadn't really seen those movies. Oh my god! So we just watched all four of them over the last couple of weeks, and um, Elsa. Her name was Elsa. Elsa. Well, I was, was close. Yes, I mean, and. Uh, don't I hope you uh, told the kids about the Shia LaBeouf, uh, the, the nader of the Indiana Jones uh, series. But, you know, blame it Shia. Yeah. yeah, he was the four and the <laughs> dial or whatever with the aliens. They went off the rails, but they're coming back in five. I can't wait for it. I like also you ended there. What's the point? Right. Why are we doing this? And you talked about the scientific endgame or clinical endgame there, specifically maybe with sickle cell patients like those you deal with. Um you know, a part of your lab is focused on modeling, understanding the malignancy and, and specifically with sickle cell. Uh, but that and other monogenic hematologic conditions are really at the center of a, a pretty pivotal shift, I would argue, toward curative medical treatments, right? Employing genetic engineering, CRISPR, et cetera, base editing. Um, but it's still early days. And, and while the proofs of principles are really inspiring, it, means, it remains to be seen how effective and are available, these uh, treatments will be for the huge range range of patients that could benefit. And you were talking about it, right? It's like, we got to meet the patient needs. That's really, how can we improve uh, transplantability and, and et cetera? Um, so I ask you this, you know, this is the, some hail it as this, the scientific pinnacle, therapeutic pinnacle cell engineering, genetic engineering, it's a cure. I could see that argument. But do you think there's still room for innovation and in, in our understanding treatment of sickle cell, other conditions like it that aren't so focused on this, you know, silver bullet genetic engineering cure? Like, is there still room for, for more basic and perhaps measured approaches like what you're doing in your lab? Well, so first of all, for sickle cell specifically, which is the one I thought the most deeply about, and I, I really benefit from being here at St. Jude and surrounded by colleagues who are taking care of these patients and trying to develop some of these um, protocols, gene therapy-based protocols. So I, I really lean on them. But um, first of all, in the whole history of sickle cell disease as a disorder, and keeping in mind that there are millions of these patients around the world, we've only transplanted a few thousand of them with any kind of hematopoietic stem cell transplant, allogeneic or autologous, right? So there's a long way to go just in terms of making transplant itself safer for this particular group of patients. They're hard to transplant. You know, they're, they're very sick. They have a progressive degenerative disease that one point mutation in this red cell specific protein causes all sorts of systemic damaging pathophysiology in these patients. I've, I've had some of the physicians tell me 
you can almost think of it as like an accelerated aging disease because of the just the consequences of this. Um, and so even just being able to transplant them in ways that are safe and that, you know, don't sterilize them and things like this, which is things that that community is very concerned about, I think is really important. Figuring out how to identify the patients that would benefit most from any kind of transplant, whether it's allogeneic or autologous versus those that have a milder phenotypes and should probably be cared for in other ways. That's a really important challenge. I think, I think when it comes to curing that particular disease and really translating it to the communities where, you know, in other parts of the world where there are millions of these patients, I don't personally think it's going to be gene therapy or transplant. I think it's going to be identifying drugs that can be delivered safely and are not super expensive to make and that can just greatly improve um, the quality of their lives, right, such that they can live longer, healthier, more productive lives. And those drugs, are, you know, there are people developing drugs that, you know, inhibit the polymerization of the mutant hemoglobin or uh, deal with the, the inflammation of the vasculature, you know, other things that are really driving a lot of the morbidity in that disease. But going back to, have we figured out how to cure these patients, you know, with gene therapy, I think the field is beginning to realize that the hematopoietic stem cell compartment that we're trying to exploit as a therapy for these autologous transplants might have some issues itself. Mm. And we need to understand more about the functional fitness of those cells before we subject too many patients to these gene therapy protocols. Otherwise, we may just be setting them up for other long-term issues. And it's hard to know exactly what those issues are going to be because we haven't been transplanting these patients for very long. Um, so we don't have long outcomes and very big numbers. But this is something the field has become really concerned about recently. And this has to do with issues such as um, I'm sure you guys have probably touched on clonal hematopoiesis and CHIP in your podcast, you know, this, this, um, this, um, this age-associated emergence of um, overrepresented mutant clones that has a, you know, very, correlates very strongly with later development of certain types of leukemia. Well, certain communities, such as like the sickle cell patients, there's a lot of reasons to suspect that they may develop precocious CHIP like much earlier in life because their hematopoietic systems are under so much constant stress uh, from a variety of sources. And there are several groups that have tried to investigate that. The work that's been published is a little, um, it's a little controversial currently as to whether or not this is actually what's happening in this population. But there have been multiple cases recently of sickle cell patients that have undergone gene therapy that have then developed leukemia. Hmm. And they showed that this was not because of any sort of vector mediated mutagenesis. So, so why did these patients develop hematologic problems? And some people think it's because within this group of patients where the bone marrow is under such tremendous stress, being caused by rapid turnover of a lineage, being caused by constant inflammation, being caused by damage to the the vascular and mesenchymal niche that supports the stem cells, that they may be developed, you know, this environment might be selecting for mutations 
uh, that then when further subjected to the stress of transplant can emerge and, and convert to, to leukemia. So um, I think this is something that's, that the field is really quite fixated on in the, the last couple of years. And I'm very hopeful that some of the work that we've been doing over the last couple of years is gonna shed some light on that because um, we started thinking about this about three and a half years ago, um, mainly because we're, we're in proximity to people that are developing these protocols. And, you know, I see the world through the, the view of the stem cell, right? And um, listening to them talk about this disease and I just, it just occurred to me well, what if what about the stem cells that you're taking out of these patients to use as a therapy? Like they've they've grown up in this incredibly stressful environment. Mm -hmm. Do you know that they are like as functional as you as you think they are? Like, shouldn't we know a little bit more about that? And at the time, you know, when I went to the literature, there hadn't really been a whole lot of study of that. And so that's something that we've become deeply invested in in the last couple of years. And Everybody knew that joins my life. That's what they want to work on. <laughs> I'm having a hard time maintaining a core group of people that are really excited about those developmental questions that I, I still find so fun and exciting. Everybody's very drawn to this topic um, because it's so translational. And I think when you when you kind of explain the rationale, why do we want to study this? It, it really captures people um, because I think it can have a real impact. So, um, I know I'm sort of rambling on here, but we're hoping that by better understanding the fitness of these cells in these patients, we can, we can, we can discover opportunities to make it such that, you know, when we collect these cells from these patients for autologous therapy, we can collect a healthier pool of stem cells that are going to be a better, you know, cellular product for them and, and set them up better and, and hopefully avoid some of these potential long-term issues. Um, but, you know, kind of as you said, I think at the end of the day, though, even if we figured all that out and, and got it just perfect, I, I'm, I'm not sure how many of those patients that therapy is really going to reach, right? Um, even here in the United States. Um, but I will say that there's a lot of people really passionate about curing that disease who take care of these patients who really would love to see that happen. You know, if it was up to them, they'd wanna cure these kids before any of these disease phenotypes even emerge, right? And just spare them all of that so that they can live long and healthy, productive lives. Um, so there's a lot of people super passionate about it um, and we'll see how it goes. But, um, you know, it's just like chasing after HSC-derived iPS cells, you know, <laughs> these things are, tricky and challenging and, and really require, uh, you know, multidisciplinary team teams. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of good people working on it. You're at the perfect place to be working on these questions. And that's the, I think the exciting thing about this is, you know, you're at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, just a powerhouse for cancer research and, you know, just a strong focus on pediatrics since its inception. I mean, it's a special place with such a beautiful legacy. I mean, there's a story that Danny Thomas, a comedian who was actually struggling to break into the entertainment business and was about to have his first child, prayed to St. Jude's as a means to provide for his family and promising that if he interceded on his behalf, he would build him a shrine, right? That's a beautiful story. And apparently a week later, he got a gig that paid the bills. And years later, 
After even greater success, Danny Thomas followed through with his end, building the hospital, and it's such a unique and special place. I mean, I grew up in the area. I'm just from down the road in, in Huntsville, Alabama, not too far from, from Memphis. Um, so, you know, we hear about St. Jude's all the time, and it's found on this premise that no child should die in the dawn of life. And as a as a new parent, that's just so powerful to me. Um, you know, it's serving patients up to the age of 21, and for the most part, where patients aren't charged for their care. It's just such an honorable institution, honorable uh, premise there. And I mean, apart from that daily inspiration of this pure and noble mission, I mean, is there anything about the structure or the composition of St. Jude's that you think enables a unique approach to scientific inquiry? What's so special about the place? I mean, I don't think we've ever actually had anybody from St. Jude's on the show. Just tell us what you think about the place. Well, I think it's just fantastic. And I feel super, super fortunate to have somehow snuck in the door and gotten a job at this institution, especially as a basic scientist, because the way they support us is just so fantastic. Um, and so so what makes it special? So, so you're right, the mission is really quite inspirational and it's very genuine. And one thing that's very ni nice about the institution is they really try to make sure that everybody employed here knows that they're like a really important part of that mission. And, and, and I mean, everybody, you know, from the clinicians and the investigators to, you know, the, the folks that run the cafeteria and, and the people who, you know, take blood from patients, like everybody, everybody is a really important part of the mission. And, and that's not something I've really felt so, so viscerally at other institutions that I've been at. And, and so I think that's very special. And they just, they support our labs with a lot of institutional resources. And that is really great because it allows, it just gives us a lot more creative freedom. So for example, you know, the these, these papers that we've published recently, you know, exploring, you know, hematopoietic ontogeny, like all of that work is supported by institutional resources here at St. Jude. I've never had an NIH grant that funded that work. Well, I guess I did have a K award as a postdoc, but aside from that early training award, you know, as an independent investigator, um, all of the NIH funding that I've been able to secure has been for, you know, transplant and sickle cell and much more translational. If I wasn't at St. Jude, I'm not sure I would have the resources to be able to keep exploring that very basic science, which is, I think, really important. And, you know, as we already discussed, lots of unanswered questions, lots of room for discovery. And so I really like being able to have that freedom to have a certain amount of the work that we do just really focused on pure discovery and not being stressed about where the funding is coming from. So I think that's that makes it very special. And I will also just uh, edit what you said to, to say that, um, you know, the mission of St. Jude is catastrophic diseases of childhood. So cancer gets an awful lot of attention, but, you know, the Department of Hematology here at St. Jude focuses on benign hematology. You know, oncology is a separate department. And so we're taking care of kiddos that have sickle cell disease and bone marrow failure and clotting disorders, which are also catastrophic diseases of childhood. So it's, it's really neat 
to be at an institution um, that has such a clearly defined mission. And I also really love that the institution is in Memphis because, you know, Danny Thomas could have built his shrine anywhere. And my understanding is that part of the reason why it's in Memphis is because he had a good friend. I, I want to say this individual was a priest, but you might have to fact check me on that, who he was talking with about where should he put this hospital. And that individual said, you should bring it here to Memphis. Memphis could really be enriched by something like this in the middle of, of our community. And I think that that is true. Um, it's, it's really nice to be here because, you know, once again, now I'm, I'm heavily focused on sickle cell disease because I think about it all the time, but we have a large community, not just here in Memphis, but also in sort of the broader catch region here in the South of patients that suffer from this terrible disease. And these are communities that don't have the same access to, you know, affordable healthcare that, you know, you and I probably have very often. And, and what a fantastic thing for them to have an institution where their children can come and they won't be charged and they'll get the best care available. And I just think it's a really wonderful thing. And um, yeah, and in fact, for that particular community, St. Jude has established um, and invested quite a bit of resources in building relationships with some of the local adult hospitals so that those patients don't just fall off the radar when they age out of care at St. Jude, that they can actually be transitioned to good adult providers, which is there's a huge spike in mortality for this sickle cell patients right around late teenage, early adulthood. I don't know that it's super well understood why that is, but part of the reason is thought to be this is when these patients are transitioning out of pediatric into adult care. And a lot of them just just don't make that transition very well. They don't get taken care of as well. And sometimes they die. You know, they have a crisis. They don't get the right care. Show up in an emergency room, doesn't know how to take care of a sickle cell patient. Here in Memphis, they're much more likely to be getting good care, even into at least early adulthood. And that's something that St. Jude, you know, invested a lot in for their patients. So I know I'm rambling on a bit here, but I think that I really do think St. Jude as an institution really cares about all the different patient communities that they take, they look after and they, they raise a tremendous amount of money, but they put a lot of that money into, into all these different efforts to improve the lives of these patients. One of their recent initiatives that they're putting a lot of resources into is expanding globally, you know, to translate the work to communities globally to, to further improve care for cancer, pediatric cancer patients and kids with sickle cell and all kinds of things. And so that's, I think that's like the next horizon for St. Jude as an institution, which I think is gonna be really interesting to see how that evolves. So yeah, it's a very special place. I feel super fortunate to be here. I think everybody should come and be a part of our uh, community because it's great. Well, you make a, a very strong sell and it is an inspiration. I mean, in an era now, a days, it seems like we're in an era of these like mega hospitals and corporatization of, of medical care. So uh, would that all hospitals began as shrines? Wouldn't that be a, a better beginning? But I guess not in the modern world. We got to look to St. Jude. 
Um, and we got to look to you as we have over the last uh, few minutes or so talking about your work. We got to look to you as one of these amazing innovators that's changing uh, the state of care for these patients at the most critical points in their life and these vulnerable patients that we all have a spot for, these kiddos. Uh, thanks for your work and thanks for talking to us about it. Before we let you go, though, we have a couple quick questions that are a bit science peripheral. First, if you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or chosen field, what would that be? <laughs> um, well, I know this might seem a little dorky, but um, I think one question I would love to answer is, um, is there life beyond Earth or the solar system? I, I know that that's not such an earth-centric question, but when I think about what is the big unknown, that's a really big one that stands out for me. And it's also a super exciting one because let's imagine that we do discover life beyond the earth or beyond our solar system. Uh, then, you know, what is the molecular biology of that life, right? I mean, it could, it could be similar to us. It could be something completely novel that we've never seen before. And I think that would be Super, super exciting. Although figuring out that there's life out there somewhere and then studying its molecular biology, those are probably going to be pretty challenging things to do uh, given uh, distance and space and time. But um, I, yeah, hopefully I don't seem too nerdy saying that, but that's that's the one that really excites me. Feel free, nerd on, geek out. <laughs> I mean, you got the right form here. Arun and I have our own little sideline sci-fi book club. And uh, he, I mean, does research in space, for God's sake. I know, I saw that, which I thought was so neat. I feel so jealous. I'm like, oh, I want to do space research. That would be so cool. Yeah, he'll set you up. He's got, a, he's got a wet lab up there starting an experiment any day now. So maybe he'll put you on. Add a few grams to that precious weight. Or maybe not. You're going to have to pay. Um, finally, we have a, a series of fill in the blanks here. First, when I'm not conducting research, I am taking care of my family. I have four kids and they keep me pretty busy. Wow. Good work. Uh, next, if I could have one superpower, it would be. Oh, this is such a tough one. I had a very hard time deciding one but I think it would be to create more time to get things done. I just feel like there's never enough time to do all the things to do. And so if I could just snap my fingers and create two more hours in the day, that would be really exciting. The other one I'd love, I'm sorry, I can't just say one, is I'd love to be able to just like grant fund, like wave a wand and make it so like my junior faculty and colleagues like would get like, first percentiles on all their grant submissions <laughs> be like your grant's going to get funded and so is yours and so is yours that would be really awesome because it's it's so hard to watch people struggle especially the junior faculty for those first few grants so that would be pretty amazing it's a very science specific superpower <laughs> that's what we talk about here that second one is specifically awesome the the genie of the study section i, I would i would i would love to have that uh, finally, I cannot start the day without tea. tea. I can't. I gotta. I gotta have a glass of tea within the first twenty minutes of waking up, or it's just not going to be a good day. 
herbal or caffeinated caffeinated i actually really dislike herbal tea (laughs) hopefully i'm not offending too many people i love straight up black tea um yeah love it whatever it takes whatever it takes to get you going (laughs) go for it uh and really again thank you so much for uh sharing with us very thought-provoking i would say more so than other guests we've had i'm walking away from this interview with a lot of thoughts about hematopoiesis i kind of gave up on the holy grail as well but now i feel good about it now i feel less like a failure and more like someone who made the right call because what are these people (laughs) even doing (laughs) but uh maybe i'm just still in denial but uh it's nice to uh think about these things from time to time lift our heads up and and focus on on what we're doing it all for so thanks for uh bringing us back to center on that and thanks for all that you shared with us today yeah thank you for having me it was a lot of fun all right everybody that brings us to the end of this episode don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. And in no time, we're going to be in Boston for the ISSCR. Can't wait to talk to you guys from the site.